Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What does it take to understand Mexico and the stark contradictions between its warm and proud culture and the bloody disregard for life and law shown by the drug cartels whose terrible power seems to grow unchecked? Alfredo Corchado has, li- has loved Mexico since he was born there half a century ago, missing his home in Durango long after his parents moved the family to the U.S. So when Corchado was offered a post covering Mexico for the Dallas Morning News in 1994, he did not hesitate. He imagined himself covering education, immigration, and the arts. But for more than a decade, he's been forced to focus almost exclusively on the crime, corruption, and violence that pose such an existential threat to all that is good and right in Mexico. Alfredo Corchado tells his story in his new memoir, Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. Alfredo, welcome to Think. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. So you did not grow up as a kid imagining that you would someday become this crusading journalist. What sort of future did you imagine for yourself? As a kid, I I imagined life in the fields. Hmm. I mean, we grew up in the San Joaquin Valley in California, and that's really what I saw around me. Uh, Hispanics working in the fields. And so that's, I thought, at one point I thought maybe I could be a foreman or the, or the uh, marry the rancher's daughter and be the big shot. Hmm. And then you did actually drop out of high school for a short time. And then what, what convinced you to go back? Uh, my mother's very savvy, very creative. She, uh, uh, I'm the oldest of nine. So she felt that uh, her reasons for leaving Mexico, her reasons for sacrificing uh, the love for her homeland were going down the wayside uh, and felt that that was very important for me to get back to school and found a way by convincing me to give me a choice. You know, uh, there's a Camaro that I wanted. Um, but she said, we'll give you the down payment. We'll give you the first three payments, but you have to do three things. One, leave the fields, leave California. Two, get an education. Um, and three, don't get married. So I, you know, I picked uh, the car over the girl. Hmm. Um, so what turned you on to journalism? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say. I I went to um, I started my 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 education, restart my education in El Paso Community College in El Paso, and this uh, counselor gave me this aptitude test. I guess that's what they call it mm-hmm. to see what kind of career I may possibly have. Because um, I told him I wanted to be a hairdresser. Uh, you saw shampoo, right? I saw shampoo, and I, and I really <laughs> thought I could be Warren Beatty. <laughs> and uh, he gives me this test, and it says, you know, you have this thing for foreign things. You know, maybe, maybe you should think about being a foreign diplomat or foreign correspondent. And when he said that, I thought about when I was 13, we were working in the fields. My parents uh, worked for the United Farm Workers of Cesar Chavez. And there, a crew came up to the fields and they were interviewing people. Um, and they started asking me questions. I, at that time, I think you had to be 15 to be out in the fields. I was 13. Mm-hmm. So my mother would put this big shirt on me and a hat and make, try to make me look older. The reporters obviously were very savvy. Uh, they come up to me and said, how old are you? And I was very honest, 13. Mm-hmm. You know, What do you think of the fields? What do you think of not having enough water? What do you think of not having sanitation? Blah, blah, Um my mother was, I mean, she, she was terrified. We we had green cards. But she felt that if I said anything wrong, we would be deported back to Mexico. I, on the other hand, felt that uh, 
it was amazing someone wanted to give me a voice. Someone actually care about what I thought. So going back to the council when he said foreign correspondent, I said, what, what does that mean? He says, well, you know, you're a reporter and you can live in a foreign country. And that's, bam, it just, you know, clicked. You know, it's just my chance, my opportunity to go back to Mexico. Um, and it was, um, I couldn't believe someone would actually pay me, you know, to go work in Mexico. And that's, I think that's what started it uh, as a reporter. I mean, it started up at the El Paso Community College, Conquistador, the Herald Post, the El Paso, University of Texas El Paso Prospector, you know, doing all these little jobs, internships, um, KDBC, uh, Channel 4. Uh, I worked there myself. I was fired. <laughs> <laughs> that was before my time. Well, uh, your parents, meanwhile, when you announced that you were not only going into journalism, but in fact moving back, had a hard time understanding why you would do that. Yeah, they had a, they had a very hard time. Um, my mother loves her country. She loves Mexico. Um, but she felt that Mexico was her carga, her, her burden, mm-hmm. and felt that we needed to focus on the United States and learn English and get an education to get ahead. She didn't really see how co- we could coexist or survive, you know, Mexico, the United States, one, one and the other. And worst thing was that we had a small little restaurant on South El Paso Street, right near the border. And so we had all these, um, you know, fishy characters that come in, come in there every now and then, shady characters. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of smuggling going on. And when I said I want to be a reporter, they felt like we don't want you to cover this. You know, this is not something you would want to do. But they never really were opposed to our dreams. I mean, they were just kind of you know guided us. But my mom said, "Look, if you feel, you feel strongly about it, you know." Dios te bendiga, you know. God, you know, God, God bless. God bless. So when you um, were there in the restaurant and you were also exploring journalism and sort of, I guess, your, your parents would draft you to, to work as well, um, there were people that you made contact with that you realized were involved in much more than just smuggling, like, consumer products. And, and there was one day when a, a bottle got dropped. Uh, I, was, uh, I was actually the waiter, and... Uh, I think I was serving enchiladas or something, or Carlos de Reyes. A bottle drops. Uh, a woman had a, I think it was a Malbec wine or something. And out comes these little plastic, you know, tubes or something. And I thought that it was, it was strange. Something was strange. Uh, she got really embarrassed. and But we didn't really talk about it. I mean, I, in those days, if you worked at uh, Freddy's Cafe in, in Salto Paso, you didn't really ask people questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, people always had nicknames, and you just kind of respected that and kind of went about your business. You know, uh, they were good, great tippers. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you went to Mexico thinking, okay, I'm going to cover education. I'm going to cover the arts. I'm going to cover this vibrant culture that I have kept in touch with but missed all this time. Um, and ultimately, that hasn't been able to be your focus. No, I... Um, I mean, I went there, and I promised my parents I would not cover drug trafficking. I, um, one of the owners, or not the owner, but the, the people who, one of our favorite customers uh, ended up you know, dead in Cancun, body parts and so forth. And that uh, really kind of sealed the deal. Uh, mm-hmm. Plus, I worked at the El Paso Herald Post, and w- our correspondent at the time uh, had been threatened, ended up in a, in a hotel right across the paper with 
police all over the hotel. And I just thought, you know, that's not what I want to do. And I, I always felt that Mexico was much more than corruption and drugs and so forth. And I really wanted to focus on issues that uh, resonated, you know, like immigration, um, music, culture, and so forth. And always kind of, I think, looking back now, like most Mexicans, kind of try to look the other way mm-hmm. and try to focus more on the beauty of Mexico and not on the underbelly or, you know, what was happening underneath. Um, and then the transformation came, the, the political changeover came in 2000. Um, let, let me stop you there, because for people who are not aware, the PRI party had been in power for a very, very long 71 time. 71 years. Yeah. And then in 2000, there's this election. Vicente Fox comes in. He's with the opposing party, the PAN. And a lot of people thought, okay, this is the change. Right. Um, and I think I was, one, I was one of them. I mean, I remember at the time, the Dallas Morning News was, was considering sending me to D.C. And I kept thinking, well, do I stay in Mexico? Or do I go to D.C.? And I remember I talked to a... Um, a State Department official, and he said, look, Mexico is democratic now. Um, the next big story will be Haiti. Uh, you should think about going to D.C. and doing something else. And, I, and, I, and George W. Bush was, uh, was president, or had just become president, I think. And um, so I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to cover a, a president from Guanajuato and one from Texas. It would lead to interesting U.S.-Mexico policy, especially immigration. So that was the plan. Uh, and in 2003, I returned to Mexico, um, and my first assignment was to cover the women of Juarez and try to, at the time, you know, uh, the missing murder, the, the missing women of, of Juarez. It, between uh, for about ten year period, there was more than 300 bodies. Um, for some reason, my editor at the Morning News at the time felt that maybe I could get to the bottom of this, and I thought, okay, well, that if that gets me back to Mexico, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I think that was the beginning of, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of forced to open your eyes. Yeah, you write that you and a lot of other journalists, in fact, were um, taken by surprise by the shift that happened after 2000 and hadn't really seen it coming. Why, in hindsight, why do you think you weren't able to see that? I think, you know, and I've talked to, to many correspondents, um, and we all come to one conclusion. Um, with a lot of humility, I think we all feel like we missed the story. We were too focused in the 90s on the, uh, on the, on the Chiapas indigenous uprising, on the peso devaluation, mm-hmm. on Mexico's entry into the first world with NAFTA and the, um, the, tr- the, the free trade agreement, that we didn't really take a close, close look at the corruption within. I mean, we always knew corruption was there, and we always knew that corruption was kind of the, you know, the oil that kept the machine going. But we didn't really know how far-reaching it was and how systematic it was. Uh, so looking back, um, I mean, there's no other way, other way to say that. I mean, we missed the story. Hmm. Well, it's always interesting when you're looking at any kind of, even a democratic revolution. It's one thing to say, I'm going to, you know, throw the guys out and take over. It's another thing to sort of plan a, a way to make a systematic change. Can Can you first of all give us some background on how, the PRI, um, either by through corruption or other methods, had sort of managed to keep a lid on some of the intercartel violence that sprang up later. I mean, the cartels have been in Mexico since the early 1900s, yeah. you know, 1930s, 1940s. 
And they've always found a way to coexist with the political party. I mean, the PRI had been there. The PRI was more than the party. It was, it was much more like a regime. It operated yeah. like a regime. So th- there was this um, um, not explicit arrangement agreement that, you know, you do your thing, uh, but no bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if there are bodies, you know, make it quiet, keep it minimal, and let's share the money. You know, let's share the, and, and the, and the bribes. And that was really kind of the system for many, many years. I mean, I think uh, for 40, 50 years, 60 years, it was maybe two, three well-known cartels. Uh, the Sinaloa cartel, the uh, Juarez cartel, and the Goff cartel. And even the Juarez cartel and the Sinaloa cartels, I mean, worked very closely. They operated very closely. Uh, there was another one in Durango, but it was very manageable for, for the, uh, again, for the, the pre-regime. That kind of became undone when the new government comes in. There's a vacuum. There's a vacuum. And, you know, again, looking back, I and I've talked to many of the National Action Party, the bond opposition party that took office in 2000. I don't think they really knew how penetrating that was or how far-reaching that was. And I think it was... Um, I remember the night I interviewed Vicente Fox, it was... Very, you know, democracy has arrived. It's a new country. And we we didn't, I, mean, I think many of us saw, saw what happened next coming. My guest is Alfredo Corchado. He is Mexican bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News and author of the new book, Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. We'll resume the interview in a couple of minutes, and you can join us by calling 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Funding for THINK comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education, offering summer courses for adults in literature and languages, cultural history, and arts and design at the Dallas, Plano, and Taos, New Mexico campuses. Registration at smu.edu CAPE. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Alfredo Corchado. He is Mexico bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News and author of the new book, Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. You can be part of the conversation at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. I want to talk a little bit about the way that you cultivate sources and um, how you decide who to trust and how you verify information when you're getting facts through these back channels and through people who it's very clear um, are not in a position to sort of give you three other names to call. That's probably the uh, the biggest challenge. Uh, it's been the hardest thing. I think in part it helped me. Uh, it helped the fact that I was covering D.C. for a while. And that 
started uh, my cultivation of sources, not just on, on the U.S. side, but also on the Mexican side, mm-hmm. on, at, uh, at the Mexican embassy. And I was also able to, to do a lot of crisscrossing. You know, you, you meet someone and you check their information with another, another source, U.S. source, with the Mexican source, and vice versa. So that when I started covering Juarez, I already had a, not a pile, but I had a few trusted sources in, back in D.C. And that sort of helped me. But, it, but in the beginning, uh, I relied a lot on, on my colleagues in Mexico, uh, more veteran reporters like uh, Tracy Eden, who was a bureau chief, Ricardo Sandoval, who covered organized crime. They were essential in, in helping me understand this murky, murky world. And I think in the, in the beginning, one of the things I did was uh, I actually brought down some of those reporters, some of those colleagues of mine, and the bureau chief at the time, to uh, Laredo to meet some of these sources. Because I wanted everyone to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I, I think I was probably the, the least comfortable with, with the whole arrangement. And I wanted men to kind of, you know, get on the same page so that when I said, because uh, I think in the beginning, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Yeah. And and you were, you know, trying to force people to give it their names and or call people informants. And then that sort of didn't work, you know. Um, so it, it, it's, it took a while. And during that time, I think I've cultivated some pretty good sources. Uh, some of them, unfortunately, have, have been killed, but uh, but many of them still remain. So the reality is um, nobody's talking to you as likable a guy as you are. Nobody's talking to you because they like you. Nobody's talking to you simply, in most cases, just because they feel the truth should be told. Everybody's kind of got an angle. So what does it take to try to figure out, just, just so that you have that information, what a source wants from you and from the publication of whatever information they might give you? I mean, you you know that... Uh Anyone, everyone is going to try to use you. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's just kind of a given as a reporter. Uh, but you're always thinking of, of what's of value for the reader. You know, what's of interest. And so you're, you know, you, you go in knowing that at some point, uh, especially if you don't know that person. You know, I, I try not to go with something to give me that day. I mean, I always try to, Check it, check, check, check as much as I can. Um, but it's always it always comes down to going to my editor in this case, you know, Tim Connolly, and saying, "Tim, I have this. What do you think?" You know, try to try to get someone that's farther away from the story than I am mm-hmm. to get their perspective. You know, is this is this story worth it? Is this worth pursuing, et cetera? So it's it's always a, a game that that you're constantly trying to find the best source who's going to be reliable and who's going to uh, use you, yes, but, but also try to give you the, the, the most verifiable information. You live in Mexico City today, right? Yes, I do. You've said the last time you felt safe in the entire country was 2007. Talk about what happened then. I just won uh, a big award. It was the Maria Morse Cabot Award uh, from Columbia University, and it was kind of a week of celebrations. I was, I was doing a lot of interviews for uh, radios and had some friends flying in. We were having a party that evening. And I get a call from one of these trusted sources, um, a U.S. investigator who said, uh, you know, where are you? And I said, Mexico, where exactly? My apartment in La Condesa. 
uh, and they said uh, we have information that uh, the Setas, the paramilitary group, are, are going to kill an American journalist. Three names came up. You're one of them. And I knew the source, still know the source, and says, I think it's you. I, I get out. Um, and it, it took, I mean, it, uh, it just, it just shocked me. It, I was, I was like frozen, uh, because when you cover, I learned quickly when I started covering the women of Juarez that when you cover the story, there's always going to be some kind of threat. Like a veiled threat, though, veiled right? Threat. Like, let it go, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can't really minimize the others, but, but there, it was not a trusted source yeah. telling you that. So, so this was different. And I, I call my um, editors back in Dallas, and they had just received information from the San Antonio paper because they had also been notified that one of the reporters could uh, be the, the target. Um, and there was another reporter from Laredo Morning Times who was the third sus- you know, suspected reporter to be the target on the target list. Um, and I asked my editor... Uh, and convince other colleagues that I wanted some time. I needed some time to figure it out. I needed to run to these sources and informants to try to figure out whether this was real or whether this was raw. And if it was real, whether there was a way for me to communicate with whoever was issuing the threat and try to establish some kind of communication and say, look, there's nothing personal here. I'm just a reporter. What what do you want? What's the problem? Because my fear at the time was... uh, I have family on both sides of the border. And I thought, you know, if they're not going after me, if it's just a way to warn me, uh, maybe they'll do something else. Maybe I'm not the target because I think as a as a U.S. correspondent, you feel there's some protection. You know, I, I was born in Mexico, but I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm an American. I have a passport. And so I, I've always kind of felt that that gives me protection, you know, something that my colleagues in Mexico lack. That gave me a sense of time. You know, let me have some time. Let me try to figure this out. So you you take the time, but there's still, I mean, at that point, uh, you've got to be looking, you know, five times in every direction. Uh, what? How do you work with that overwhelming sense of paranoia? And there was, there was an occasion when um, you, you got a phone call about um, that, that made it very clear that someone knew exactly where you were and was watching you when you were in a public place. Yeah, I mean that that was really the uh, uh, the first one, the first threat. And uh, I was um, in Ciudad Juarez. I just cover, just I was on a, on a panel at some event on the women of Juarez, and a guy calls me and says, "I know exactly where you are." And I looked at the streets, and it was exactly the corner. And you look around you. And there's all these cars. You have no idea. Luckily, at the time, there was um, a, an attorney who had an office right near there. And I just ran to his office. Um, I mean, I just stormed in. And, and I said, this just happened to me. What's what's going on? And he said, they're just trying to scare you. I mean, he really downplayed it. They're, they're just trying to scare you. They know who you are. We had just, uh, the morning news had just printed a story on a group called La Línea. And it was the first time that anyone in in Mexico or the United States had mentioned that word, La Línea, which later became the er- everyday common name in Juarez. You know, La Línea is responsible for the killings of, of so many people, including women. Um, and again, I wasn't really sure what, is, what, what I was onto at the time. So 
you know, when people kind of downplay, oh, it's just, they're just, it's just, a, it's a normal tactic, you know, don't worry about it. Um, that was different. Let's talk about what you discovered there, because um, many people had sort of heard that the the cases were solved when uh, a bus driver and some associates were arrested. What did you discover? I discovered that um, uh, through that um, attorney and through other sources that uh, La Linea was also responsible for some of the killings of these women, that the new power in Juarez were really these cartel members who were both cops and thugs, and who had, uh, you know, systematically taken over the state government, I mean, and, and including members of the federal government. And that started giving me a sense of just how far-reaching this was. Um, they said, look, a lot of these killings are also domestic killings, but there are some where these men just feel they're empowered to do whatever they want. I mean, they are the law in this town, and if they feel like killing somebody they 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 have cops that kind of target women i mean they look for single um women who come from the south part of mexico living in Juarez and on their own so that if they disappear at some point no one really misses them they won't be noticed they for won't a be while. noticed for a mm-hmm. while um and this one source uh talked about you know there were there were parties and and in, in some of those parties, there were a lot of rapes or there were orgies, et cetera. And usually the women always knew too much afterwards, so they had to discard them. Hmm. There was that theory. There was also theories of um, witchcraft and other things. you know. But in the end, Mexico's judicial system is so weak that I kept thinking, you know, I can spend 10 years here, 20 years covering the story, and I'll never really know what, what really happened, um, because it was always uh, it was it was like a black hole. You know, you just keep searching and searching. And you find this fascinating theory or that fascinating theory, but in the end, um, even you know back then and even today, Mexico's conviction rate is less than five percent. When ordinary Mexicans get like robbed at home or or uh, mugged on the street or have their car stolen, do they bother to call the police? That's one of the saddest things is that uh, it happens all the time. Um, it, I mean, they wipe the cops. I mean, the the saying in Mexico is, uh, if you want the thugs off the streets, make them cops. <laughs> and so, people, I think that's really the last thing many of them do is call the cops. One eight hundred nine three three five three seven two is our telephone number. You can also join the conversation via email to think at kera dot org. We have Olivia calling from El Paso. Hi, Olivia. Hi, hello, kids. Hi, go right ahead, please. Sorry, I've got a bad signal, but yes, it's such a compelling interview. I really love it. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading this book. Um, yes, I'm a transplant from England here in El Paso, and I'd really love to know what's been the most um, compelling story you've done along the U.S.-Mexico border. Thanks for your call. The most compelling story uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border, I mean, that's a, that's a really hard question. I mean, I think they're all compelling. Um, I think the story that that perhaps has impacted me more was the the story of Naceta in Laredo, Nuevo Laredo. Um, because Juarez is such a big city, such a big community, El Paso Juarez, that you, you know, you can you can go to Juarez at any any moment and you feel like what's the big deal? I mean, things feel kinda normal. But in in Nuevo Laredo and to a certain extent in Nuevo Laredo in in Laredo, Texas, 
you immediately feel the power, the power of the cartels there. Um, you feel the um, the halcones, um, the the lookouts, no, the lookouts in English. So that always, I mean, grabs at me, uh, just how far-reaching it is. I mean, if there's one single story that I would say just took everything away from me, I mean, just uh, blew me away was, was the... Um, wrong metaphor but it was the the Via Salvarca the the birthday massacre in, in yeah. Ciudad Juarez um because that I think was Mexico's pr- worst moment excuse me for interrupting for people who don't remember this is a bunch of teenagers essentially having a birthday party at home uninvolved as far as anyone could tell with any of the violence January 31st uh 2010 and uh they, most of them were um athletes their parents did not want them to Go into the city to party. So they they uh, there was a house right across the neighborhood. I mean, right across the neighbors. They said, "Why don't you go to this house and and have your party?" Um, over thirty of them showed up, and these cartel guys um, were looking for members of the Triple A Assassin Group, which is a group associated with the Sinaloa cartel, rivals of the Juarez cartel. These guys had just won a championship. And it was a triple A, the triple A also. So they had the wrong party. They had the wrong house. Hmm. They walked in um, and just started massacring people. I think 15, mostly young people were killed. That was, I, in my opinion, I think Mexico's darkest, worst moment. And yet I think it also brought out the best in people. I mean, it really showed the resiliency of the of the Mexican, you know, the, the sense of hope. Um because that community, I mean, they were they were literally on their knees, and and they've been able to, to rise up. I mean, as, as a journalist, you you cover this so much that oftentimes you, you become jaded and you become like, you know, I just want to just want to get away from here. Anytime I feel like I've I've lost a sense of hope in Mexico, I mean, I try to communicate, I try to contact these people because you see what's what they're doing and how they're going about their lives. Uh, and that gives you a sense of hope for the rest of the country. We have an email here from Bob who wants to know, how pervasive are cartel operations on this side of the border, and at what point will the U.S. government intervene? I, you know, it, um, I think it was 2004, 2005, it, we did uh, one of the first stories in the Dallas Morning News about the presence of, of setas in, in North Texas. And at the time, the the local police in Dallas, I mean, really downplayed it. I mean, they kind of poo-pooed the idea. We continue covering the story since then. And just last week we saw the killing in, in South Lake, uh, the killing of a Mexican attorney who was targeted by a Mexican cartel. Um, it, I, I don't want to use the word a spillover of violence because it's not going to happen like the way it's, it's happened in Mexico. I mean, I think once things cross into the United States, there are different rules, there are different forms uh, of the way things operate or how things operate. But it's not unusual f- for cartels to target people, whether it's Dallas, whether it's San Antonio, whether it's McAllen, Laredo, El Paso, maybe other parts of the country. Um, and I don't know that, um, I mean, it, when does the U.S. get involved? I think the U.S. is already pretty pretty involved. 
We're speaking this hour with the Mexico Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News, Alfredo Corchado. His new book is called Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. We'll come back to the conversation in a couple of minutes. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education, offering summer courses for adults in literature and languages, cultural history, and arts and design at the Dallas, Plano, and Taos, New Mexico campuses. Registration at smu.edu CAPE. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Alfredo Cochado. He is Mexico bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News, and he has a new memoir out called Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. Join us by emailing think at KERA.org or by calling 1-800-933-5372. Your partner, your girlfriend, on multiple occasions has said to you, listen, you are obsessed. You're going to get yourself killed. You're going to get someone else killed. Why can't you stop? Well, ironically, she's really the one who who opened the doors to Mexico for me. Uh, she was born in Mexico City. We're talking about Angela Cochega. And really made me believe that I could come back. Um, I, you know, should I have listened to her at the time? In retrospect, yeah, maybe. I, I you know, what I went through and, and and what I put her through and other people through, um, maybe I should have done that. But I actually ended up listening to her and left Mexico, um, went away on a fellowship for a year, which kind of extended into two years. But I left thinking, this may be it. Maybe maybe my mother was right. You know, this is not the country that you should be in. And I, in in a sense, I was fleeing Mexico. I was trying to get away from Mexico. When I started writing the book, it was kind of a way for me to come to peace and try to understand what what happened to my homeland. Um, and I, I think since then, the book helped me find a sense of closure in in, in that I don't really have to choose anymore. You know, home is really on both sides. Or on either side. Or on either side, right. Um, and sometimes I actually feel happiest when I'm, I'm on both sides. I'm, I'm able to go back and forth. Um, my umbilical cord was buried in Mexico. I mean, when I was born in, in Durango, it, it, it's a family, it's a town tradition. You know, I think it's a tradition in many parts of Mexico. So That it, your soul resides where your umbilical exactly. cord gets buried. That's mm-hmm. where it is. and. And that always, I mean, even though I don't go to Durango as much as I, I like to, I mean, I go back and forth every other year or every year, but I still feel this incredible attachment to not just Durango, but, but Mexico as a whole. Um, my, my sister is buried there, and there's always, you know, this connection of, of 
Plus, I think sometimes when you're in the United States, people forget that there are 35 million people here who trace their roots back to Mexico. So it's, it's, it's like a Mexico here and a Mexico there. And I think getting away on that fellowship, I mean, getting away the furthest from Mexico at the time, gave me this perspective that uh, I didn't really have to run. I didn't really have to flee. I, I just I needed to understand what why the country had not prospered the way we think it should, or many of us think it should. Have you been able to stop hoping that that what you wish to come true will come true? I mean, that's a little harder than than recognizing that it may not happen. No, I I don't, um, and I say that because of again of of reaching this this dark moment in Mexico and seeing just how people are trying to build this sense of society. And and I think for the first time, when, you know, in my 20 years of covering Mexico for the morning news, I, I see um, people really trying to lay claim to their homeland. They're, they're really trying to hold government accountable. It's encouraging. I, I live in La Condesa, uh, right across from the Colonia Roma, and, and recently there was an incident that really, I think, made a lot of people kind of excited. Uh, th- there was a, uh, the the daughter of the Consumer Protection Agency walked into a restaurant, couldn't get her favorite seat, and she starts, you know, uh, I, I, this is my seat, I want this seat, blah, blah, and makes a big commotion. The sort of don't you know who I am Exactly, thing, right? exactly. And the, uh, some of the customers started taking pictures of her and recording it, and they put it on Twitter and Facebook, and it became like the biggest thing. The guy had to resign. He was fired. Uh, the daughter had to issue an apology. Stuff like that that that, that gives you a sense of, you know, um, this society is moving. And it's also, you know, because I, I, I was raised in El Paso. And you have, at one point, the deadliest city in the Americas or in Mexico, right across one of the safest cities. And you realize, what, you know, we're the same people. El Paso is 85 90% Mexican. Um it's it's really not the people. I mean, so that gives you hope in the people, and it gives you a sense of you know they're 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 trying to hold the government accountable, and you see that in in subtle ways. You know, it's I think if you're in the United States, you 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 ask that question a lot. You know, why can't Mexico get it together? But I think if you live in Mexico, you see those small changes, subtle changes that are taking place. I mean, Mexico is not the same place that I arrived in 20 years ago. It's, it's very, very different. As much as uh, journalists are threatened today, uh, as much as there are zones uh, of silence, you know, where people are, are forced to self-censor themselves, uh, there's also a lot of uh, courageous people, a lot of courageous journalists. Three of the Pulitzers this year you know, went to Mexicans. Um, they're, they're, they're using the transparency law, for, for, for example. I mean, they're able to dig into government records and documents and so forth. It's a big change. You also touch briefly in the book on what used to be sort of um, unbreakable class bonds in Mexico. Um, and you mentioned the fact that you live in this upscale neighborhood. People might assume that you were a country club kid who now got a job as a journalist. And your mother was visiting you, and, and she was concerned when you went to the market that, that people would think she was your maid. Right. Um, <laughs> which is pretty sad. It, uh, and it it said to me a lot about my own possibilities had I stayed in Mexico. And it said a lot about my mother's own convictions, you know. Uh, I arrived 
in Mexico in 94 and ended up living, I think at the time it was the wealthiest neighborhood in the Americas, Coyoacán. Um, very historical, very um, colonial, beautiful. Diego Rivera Museum is right down the street. Frida Kahlo as well, big marketplace. It was like a former president's rental property, said it? Former president, I think, had more than 27 properties in the area. Uh, he was my landlord, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it was interesting going to these markets and, and people asking you, and you are the son of, you know. And I would, in a way, you know, it was my way of kind of sticking it to them because uh, there's a sense in Mexico that if you migrate, if you left Mexico, you betray the country. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, my father was actually a guest worker at Bracero, and I'm the correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. What was the? W- w- did you look for the look on people's faces when you uh, said that? All the time, all the time, uh, and it was always, it was always interesting. You know, they they just they were just quiet, ah, mucho gusto, mm-hmm. and they walk away. Um, and so one one market, uh, my mom. You, you saw these women, very rich men, you know, their jewelry and so forth, and what their mates next next door th- or next to them. And I'm standing there with my mother. And my mom says, you know, they probably think I'm your maid. And my mother uh, did clean houses in, in Gomez Palacio in Durango. So she had that complex about that. Um, I would, you know, I would, uh, anytime my parents visit me in Mexico, I always try to take them to nice restaurants to kind of, sh- you know, Make them feel like they belong, and not make not you know they're, they're outsiders. Like I, said, I think when people migrate, when they leave Mexico, they feel like they become outsiders. I mean, they're nostalgic about their hometowns, but not about the the country itself, the, the, especially the elite. I mean, Mexico is really three countries: the elite, the very elite, the middle class, and the poor. And so, it's it's also a way. I always tell my mom, you just enjoy yourself, you know enjoy yourself this is this is your country this is your home you know this is your food do you feel more at home there now than your parents who spent uh, certainly their entire childhoods and their young adulthood there i know my father feels very very foreign when he goes back to mexico um in fact he doesn't really miss mexico as much as my mother does mm-hmm. i maybe to their chagrin i feel much more at home there much more comfortable. But uh, I think I've also learned to appreciate and embrace the United States a lot more um, over, over the Since last Since going years. back to Mexico? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, when I went back to Mexico, it was, it was really romanticism. It was, it was nostalgia and so forth. Um, but I think being in Mexico and seeing the way people reacted to me rate, uh, really made me understand why we left. And really made me feel like in the U.S. I always have a chance. I don't think I, I can I can say that or I can feel that even 20 years after living in Mexico. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to, uh, we'll speak with David in Fort Worth. Hi, David. Yes. Hi, David. I'm not sure if we can hear you. Can you, can you speak up? Okay. Unfortunately, that's a bad connection. It looks like David wanted to ask what people in the U.S. can do to help Mexico, maybe. And I'm not sure what the rest of his question was. I'll assume that maybe he meant to achieve uh, full democracy or, or safety. What do you think? I think that, you know, this is a really critical time in Mexico because the the old pre is back, the, the regime is back. Um, 
and there's a sense that uh, it's not even a sense, but I mean it's very true. They're trying to change a narrative. Um, civil society is just kind of, you know, doing its footing in Mexico, and and they're they're getting their footing right. And I think this is it's a critical time to keep the United States. You know, when 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 I talk to to organizations, uh, grassroots organizations, they always say, "Please don't let the United States look the other way." You know. Don't uh, let's not go back to the past. Uh, Mexicans are m- much less nationalistic than than they were in the past. They're much less worried or concerned about sovereignty issues. Mm-hmm. They, they, I think, there's a sense they they really want to build a civil society and they really want strong institutions and they really see the United States playing a role in helping them achieve that. Um, Rather than the, the past perception, which was really that that they had to act in response to whatever the U.S. Right. had done to Mexico. Exactly. I mean, I think in, in the old days it was as long as Mexico has stability and and the pre can provide that, uh, we don't have to worry about Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. And I think I think over the last few years, Mexicans in general have seen just how weak their institutions are, their their judicial, and and the United States has. I mean, they 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 did start. Working on that, you know, uh, helping. I mean, we all hear about the the Medida initiative as uh, military aid and and training and so forth. But there are other things that they've been doing with community police force, community relations that I think are important to continue. Do you worry that that the focus on crime? You know, many Americans now look at Mexico and the first thing they think is crime and violence and drugs. Um, recognizing that it's a huge problem, there are still millions and millions of honest people trying to just get their work done and go. Um, I mean, do you do you is there part of you that that wishes you could set these stories aside as important as they are, so that people could understand there's more to Mexico? Absolutely. I mean, I think that they're, they're Really are to Mexico. I mean, there's a there's a Mexico that's prosperous, that's growing, um, that's in, in, for example, central Mexico. I mean, in they're in Querétaro, state of Querétaro, they're building airplanes. Some of the biggest auto plants are in the states of Aguascalientes and and Guanajuato. I wish uh, I could be doing a lot more of those stories. And and oftentimes when I start working on these stories, you know, something happens, something mm-hmm. breaks that you have to go back. But um, just in my own family or just in my own small circles, you know, I always find it interesting that people say, well, I was thinking of going to the beach in Mexico this year, but, you know, after reading your last story, I don't think I want to go. And and that does that does bother me um, because Mexico is not, uh, I mean, there's not danger or, or violence lurking in every corner. I think the conditions for that exist in lots of parts of Mexico, you know, Uh Poverty again, like, you know, it sounds like a broken record, but but weak institutions. Eventually, you know, it'll catch up. I mean, I arrived in Mexico and it was one of the most violent cities in the Americas. Now it's one of the safest cities, like street crime violence. Street crime, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Monterrey at one point was one of the safest cities, and then it became a violent city. But having said that, I mean, uh, the violence is very targeted in regions. Uh, Juarez, up to, you know, just up to recently, it was one of the most violent cities, and now it's pretty safe not you know not still where people want it to be but it's a pretty safe city what's the difference between the american and the mexican sides of your soul <laughs> uh i think uh that's an excellent question let's um it's sad they've only given you like 30 seconds to no, answer it i apologize okay. for that i i think on the, on the mexican side it's the hopeful side mm-hmm. and on the u.s side it's the realistic side you know the more practical more, more pragmatic part of me comes out 
Alfredo Corchado is Mexico bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News. His new memoir is called Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. Alfredo, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. It was wonderful to have you on. Thank you. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much. Today's show was engineered by Shelley Canavy. We had Joe Bellotti on the phones, Christine McConnell producing our podcast, and Lindsay Connect helping out executive producer Jeff Whittington today. You can learn more about the show and download the podcast free at kera.org slash think. And we always welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Email those to think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.